Beyond the Ranch with Jay Gannon from Find the Ranch. Welcome to Beyond the Wrench. My name is Jay Gannon, and today's guest is somebody that I'm really excited to have on. Extremely smart, extremely fun to talk to, and I think is going to bring a ton of value to all of our listeners. Uh, I, I think just from her background and what you'll see as we dive into this, she's got a unique background, maybe one that we don't see every day. And uh, and something that I'm really uh, excited to to kind of dive into. So, Carolyn Cocolette. Co- no, how did I say it? Did I did I did I murder it? You nailed it. Got it. All right, Carolyn Cocolette. You told me to flatten it out. Go faster. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, we were joking before the podcast started. My last name's Ganinen, and people overthink it, and then they just get all all kinds of uh, all kinds of confused. There aren't that many Carolyn's in the business, so I think most people just call me Carolyn, and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Carolyn is the founder and CEO of a company called Shopware. And as I'm learning more and more about Shopware, and, and the more and more I'm learning about Carolyn, the more and more I'm impressed. And I, I really enjoy what she's doing for the industry and uh, with her company in general. So, Carolyn, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. We we got to um, catch up uh, last week, and man, we 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 could just talk for hours. So yeah. I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun. And I mean, I'm I'm excited to you know get to know your your community, and um, I'm excited to be here. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about you before we go on to shopware. Uh, how how did you end up in this position today? Yeah, um, I have a, a good friend of mine who is actually the gentleman who inspired me to become a mechanic in the first place. His name's Tim Pot, and I originally so I, I started at the community college in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Washtenaw Community College, and I I was going to school there because I had just graduated from the University of Michigan and um, had a problem with my car that summer, and I, I realized I was totally helpless to fix my car, and I thought, what did I just spend four years doing? So I, I enrolled in night classes, and this gentleman, Tim, was one of the instructors, super intelligent, super well-spoken person, uh, excellent, excellent technician. And I was like inspired, if this guy could be a mechanic, I could be a mechanic. So I ended up going to work for him as the, as the shop porter initially. And then uh, I left his place, Eurotech Motors at the time, and moved on to uh, a service station at the corner of uh, Washington and Packard, um, excuse me, Washington Stadium, Packard Stadium, Packard Stadium. Ah. in Ann Arbor uh, and, you know, typical service stations got the gas pumps up front. They still had full service at the time that I first started there. So it was like very much an old school type of um, gas station garage. So awesome. Yeah. And there was sort of two, two bays. I was in one of the bays and that's where I really, you know, kind of cut my teeth, but I had lunch with Tim, like, I don't know, maybe six months after I'd started wrenching there. And there was a little bit of like awkwardness because I had left his business. I think he wanted to make sure there wasn't going to be any hard feelings or anyway. So we get out to, to lunch and he says to me, um, you know, I didn't think you would last this long. And I was very insulted. I was like, you know, what are you saying about, you know, yeah. my, my, my muster here. And he, uh, he goes, no, no, I just thought you'd be smart enough to get out by now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever. That was 20 years ago. So like, obviously I'm not that smart, but you know, what's, what's exciting. And I think everybody, you know, who works on cars feels this way. Is it's just such a dynamic industry. It's such a dynamic occupation. 
Um, certainly there's, there's, that's never more true than it is today with changes that are going on with cars. Um, it's always a wild ride. Customers are crazy. Uh, working on cars is one of the few things that, you know, we actually do with our hands anymore um, and get paid for it. So it's, it's really a, a very special place. And certainly, you know, my journey is fixing cars and then moving out to California to work on hybrids. And then I opened a hybrid shop, which I still own, a luscious garage here in San Francisco. And uh, then five years after starting that business, I decided to go into the software side of things to take what we had used inside of that business and offer it to other folks in the industry. And so we've been off to the races working on that ever since. So it's been, <clears throat> let's say we started the first line of code was written in 2013. And I was looking for URLs and shopware is available. So we decided to call it shopware. And so we've been at this for quite a long time, but we still fix hybrid cars, uh, still proud to be an owner and an operator. So um, yeah, I just love this business. So there is so much in that little summary that you just said that I have to unpack. <laughs> so first and foremost, you went to the University of Michigan, which is a very prestigious university. What, what did you go there for? I got a bachelor's of science, so BS, in physics and English, which is a way of saying that I couldn't make up my mind. But, uh, <laughs> I originally had joined the engineering college and um, turned out that the engineering college was way too difficult. They wanted me to take organic chemistry. And that's where I drew the line. I said, no, I'm not going to take organic chemistry. I'm leaving the College of Engineering. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into the literature, science, and the arts, the like, you know, uh, you know, sort of mainstream college. And they call it LSNA or LS and play. They, they make fun of it. That it's like not nearly as rigorous as the engineering school, but whatever. For Michigan folks, I went into LS and play. And then I kept going on the uh, on the science part with the physics and then took up English as well to get sort of more, um, you know, left brain, right brain kind of stuff, which is great because when you, <clears throat> you know, were tired of doing your physics homework, you'd go to your English homework. And when you were tired of doing English homework, you'd go to your physics homework and, and so on and so forth. So uh, I really enjoyed it. But the problem with that is that <clears throat> when you go to look for a job after graduating, you don't make sense to anybody. Uh, and it turns out that if uh, you get this dual degree in particular, it, it turns out you're really great at fixing cars because you can <laughs> you can figure out how the, the cars work really well. And then um, you can also communicate with customers. So it's kind of an interesting uh, backstory. So how how did your family take it when you uh, oh, were like, poorly. hey? <laughs> very poorly. Yeah, no, they were not thrilled. They were not thrilled. They were kind of like waiting for like, how, when is this going to be over? You know, when is this phase going to pass? And are you to come back into a rejoin society as we know it. And, um, you know, now you fast forward and I, I own a couple businesses and the businesses have been successful. And so now it, you know, doesn't look now so bad was, now. Now it doesn't look so bad. Exactly. But at the time it was, you know, it was very awkward. There were some, there were some come to Jesus moments and I, I still kept on going. I mean, it's, it's interesting. The, the hybrid piece has been a really important part of the story because if hybrids hadn't been around at that time, I don't know if I would have sunk my teeth in as deep yeah. as I ended up doing. I mean, I was really excited about it. I still am very excited. And of course, now we see how that is a stepping stone to all the changes coming next and yeah. are already upon us. I mean, Tesla's here, right? Tesla's rolling into our base. So <clears throat> um, that's fun too. It's fun to be a part of the industry change. And um and, you know, kind of have that additional stimulation along with everything else that's going on. 
Where did the where did the love for hybrids come from? Like, where where was that? Like, is it an environmental thing? Is it a um, just fascination with the the car kind of thing? Like, where where does that true passion come from? Yeah, it's cool. It's like double the trouble, right? You've got twice as many things to go wrong. Um, the stuff that hybrids have, I mean, there's a couple things that they have that conventional cars don't have. But you know, you're basically taking the alternator and the starter and you're kind of, you know, smushing them together and pumping them full of steroids. So you've got the electric motor side of things and then you've got a hybrid battery, right? A high voltage battery. It's not unlike a regular battery, um, but it's a lot bigger and it's a little more intimidating and so on and so forth. So getting to know those systems and also, you know, the Prius is just an incredibly elegant piece of engineering and, and Toyota doesn't deserve credit for it. Um, really? Ford, Ford actually designed the um, hybrid synergy drive uh, motor transmission setup. Did so I know that? The, the, the two motors and then using the planetary gear set was something that they originally um, patented, I believe. And they let the patent expire in, I can't remember the exact year. And Toyota, well, maybe it was a license, forgive me, it's been a while, but um, Toyota ended up getting that um, control over that technology. And then they obviously built <clears throat> the Prius. And when Ford released the Escape several years later, like five years later, yeah. uh, Toyota actually knocked on Ford's door and said, I beg your pardon, you need to pay us the license this, <laughs> even though Ford had originally designed it. So there was a, there the, the sort of Detroit's myopia and Detroit's, you know, short, short-sightedness yep. uh, continues continues to sort of um, to rankle, if you will, uh, the, the big three. But um, yeah, that was a kind of funny story. Yeah. And so, and this is a little bit off topic of where we're going with this today, but I, it's something that I think a lot of people still view as very mysterious, right? Like in terms of the hybrid side of things and the future of, of car repair. Um mm -hmm. You know, and I've read online posts where people freak out, like, on, oh, what are we going to do? There's not going to be any jobs left. All they need is brakes and all they need is, like, just maintenance items. And I, I, I'd love to get your take on the future of the industry in regard to, like, auto repair 20 years down the road. Like, mm -hmm. what, what, and you probably have a better background on this than what most, I, I would say, most shop owners do. I mean, everybody's got, you know, I do not run the best shop in the world. I've, I have visited plenty of other businesses that are, are doing harder things and are doing them better than we are. And, you know, we're, we're all learning all the time. Uh, it's, a, it's a work in progress, right? There's no destination. That said, uh, we certainly have had a ton of experience on this particular um, segment of the vehicle population. And we, for folks that aren't aware, we, at some point, right, for a certain period of time, we were running a night shift. So we opened, um, originally it was open from midnight to, to 8 a.m., which was dumb. And I eventually kind of moved the, the hours earlier. So at like kind of its heyday, we were open from uh, 8 a.m. in the morning until 4 a.m. the following uh, day, two 10-hour shifts back to back. So we did eight to six with one crew, and then we did six to four with a second crew. And then we were closed during the day on Saturday and Sunday, but we were still open overnight on Saturday and Sunday. So we had different um, staff working different nights. So <clears throat> yeah, that was that was a blast. And then, so we were open 120 hours a week at that time. And we had 
I can't remember now. It's probably like 10 technicians spread across. We have five days in our, uh, in our shop. So, you know, wow. spread over different days working four tons and stuff like that. Yes. It was a lot of fun. And so this was in the taxi heyday. So the yeah. purpose of being open overnight was for taxi cabs. And of course the, the taxis, it was sort of like, um, if you were in the Prius repair business, you very quickly became in the hybrid, I'm sorry, the taxi repair business. Yep. Because there were so many Prius and, and Escapes and Camrys and Altimas and all those inside of um, the taxi space. And obviously the, the benefit of them being commercial vehicles is that they actually wear out a lot faster, right? Yeah. You get to do brakes on a regular Prius kind of like once in its lifetime, like at 200,000 miles, you finally get to hang a set of brakes on it. Um, but taxis, you get to hang brakes and you get to replace radiators and struts and all kinds of stuff that the regular cars don't get nearly as often. So there was money over there. Of course, the margins are a lot thinner. And the, I originally had gone out and looked for <clears throat> a separate location to wow. run the taxi business because I thought, well, these guys don't want to come to San Francisco. There's an area of town where sort of all the yards are. I thought we should locate down there and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and what I realized was the cheapest place I could possibly rent was the place I already had and just do it at different hours. So we, we did that for a while. Wow. It was the down when the, when the taxis kind of got eaten by Uber and Lyft. So there's no taxi <laughs> business anymore. So we don't do it anymore. But <clears throat> that was like, we used to call it our R&D department because essentially we got to see, first of all, not only did the cars break, a lot of them are salvage. So we saw like just the craziest stuff would roll in and bless those cars hearts. I mean, they still ran a hundred thousand miles a year, even when they were salvaged and the engines all jacked up there. And you're just like, I can't, this car's going to the airport. You know, this car can't get to the airport. And it's like, this going back and forth in the airport all day, every day. So they're really I think I've rode, I, I think I've rode a couple of those. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So you're going, you're going down the freeway. It's kind of like the old crown Vix. Yeah. Which they, which they called the Russian tanks. And you get to know the taxi business. The taxi business is fascinating, you know, and it's, it was kind of fun because, so here's this woman owned, like luscious garage, green business, plants hanging from the ceiling. Like what, what is this place? And the reality is that the taxi cab world or the taxi business is so um, sort of uh, like ethnically diverse like there's so many different people there's a lot of different groups and they band together and it's like okay there's like the the russian taxi uh business with the russian yard that works on all those cars and there's the sort of the um you know mongolian uh color scheme and their yard and so on and so forth so we were kind of this weird switzerland for these guys where there wasn't any preference or bias for any particular country or background or whatever. Right. And in all cases, what they needed was a liaison to help them get their cars fixed, right? They needed help. And a lot of these guys used to fix cars and, you know, when they, you know, when they're home country. Yeah. So they were, you know, they were like very particular about how they wanted things to be done. And it, we ended up finding like a really great partnership. People say like, Hey, look, like, we're the best at this and we're going to try and work with you as much as possible. We kept a ton of used parts. Anyway, I'm talking about taxis. This is a while ago. I'm happy to talk more about it. But the, yeah. the, the, the point is that we got to see the cars break <clears throat> in a way that was like very compressed. And that was awesome because that was essentially like a proving ground for the technology, both in terms of batteries, you know, electric motors, inverters, all the stuff that essentially any electric car has. Yeah. Um, and how, what are their kind of modes for, for failure? So that was cool. And I think that, you know, everyone 
fears change, it's hard to know what we're going to have to do because the future is uncertain, right? And that's true regardless of where you are. It's not just uh, automotive repair, but the good news is that all cars break. They just might take longer to break. And so the question is just how do you put yourself in a place where you're there when the dollars come and and how do you you know optimize your business for the periods of time when you may be less busy or there's less there's less you know less dollars to be made. So yeah. essentially getting more efficient, more cars through the base, more customers, right? Uh, so you basically just have to turn up the gas. You can't keep waiting for that Mini Cooper to come in that needs that bad transmission over and over and over again. Those days are not going to be uh, around very much longer. Right. Yeah. And I. So is it primarily maintenance stuff on on the electric vehicles, or is it like you're still doing advanced diagnostics? Right. Like it's not like you're. They don't have stuff go wrong with them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. When they go wrong, now you need a factory tool. And uh, you're going to have to probably buy factory parts, at least for now. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 just like everything else that's happening to us, right? In terms of needing to be better and better on the technology, and in terms of like service mix, for us the the electric side is still pretty new. Like I can't tell you until I can tell you what, what breaks on a hybrid, but I'm less intelligent about like how do Leafs break or how do Teslas break. And I was on a different podcast with Carm Capriato yeah. and some folks last Thursday, I guess. And um, uh, Seth Thorson was on it. He's got a shop up in Minnesota. And he was talking about how they're working on Teslas and it's got coolant leaks and oil leaks and all this kind of stuff that's going wrong. It's like, ooh, that's great. That sounds delicious. Like, fantastic. <laughs> they break. So, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. But they're machines. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting. It's like... So when people think about hybrid repair, um, which is actually, it comes out in diagnostics quite a lot. Like you'll hear people say, okay, well the car came in, it had like X, Y, Z warning lights on. Do you think it's a hybrid battery? Like, because it's got a hybrid label on the back of it, everybody's thinking battery, battery, battery all the time. Sure. Um, and of course the batteries do go bad, but they don't go bad very often. So the chances that's what it needs is, is pretty low. And there's a bunch of other stuff that, you know, also goes wrong. So um, anyway, people get very preoccupied with sort of the battery, the electric motor and stuff like that. It's the mysterious thing, right? Like it's like, it's, it's new. Yeah. This is like the rubber, you know, the air conditioning, the wiper blades, the light bulbs, like Prius repair is like light bulbs, tires, and water pumps. That's what we do. Light bulbs, wire, uh, tires, and water pumps. And it's just like regular cars, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I've got one complaint on Priuses, and I don't know if if you if you can identify with this. No, just just one that just drives me absolutely crazy, and I think it's uh, and maybe I'm wrong here, but the amount of Prius drivers that drive in the fast lane and do ten miles an hour under the speed limit. You've been in California, I see. <laughs> It's the same way in Wisconsin. It's the same way in Arizona. It's the same way in Minnesota. I, I don't know if it's just me and maybe I, I just see them more, but it does feel like every time I see a Prius, they're doing 10 miles an hour under the speed limit in the fast lane if they're not a taxi. Right. I, I mean, there's certainly, there's like the more timid drivers and those timid drivers don't necessarily pick out, you know, the, the M series BMW sedan, you know what I mean? They, they pick the car that suits their personality. And so yeah. they're, they're driving a very kind of sterilized car, like a Prius. 
um, and then they're not they're not terribly um, sensitive to the the surroundings when they're inside of that little bubble. But I mean, most people complain about the visibility, like the cars yes. have this really intense A uh, pillar, and as a result, you can't really see pedestrians, you can't really see a lot of things, and so the, the people always think, you know, that those Prius drivers are such jerks. They they, they just they can't see anything. Can't see, yeah. <laughs> Um, and they actually admitted that Toyota admitted that they did a, a bad job with the visibility of that car. So it's kind of cool. And you know, what's fun is that the Gen One Prius, which is the first car they made, yeah, um, is like a little fishbowl. Like that thing, you can see everything. Really, the turning radius is awesome. Like that car is so much fun to drive. It's fast. I don't think I've ever been in one, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, Gen Ones are a lot of fun. Wow. So yeah, it, so it's not necessarily the hybrid part that makes it so bad. It's just the the car package and that's there's nothing wrong with that i was more uh it was an observation that uh i've i've made in the past and i just i wanted to make sure that i wasn't i, I wasn't being unfair you know the the parking in the fast lane and not moving over is to, is a total anathema to me like i'm from ohio you know <laughs> we have places to be like you always move over even if you're just gonna go for a little while longer and then <laughs> Even if there's no one behind you, you move over. When you come out to California and people just get on the freeway and they pull into the fast lane, and they just sit there. It's like, you'd think, and you'd think because there's the, the population is greater in California that people would be more sensitive to like other people. But maybe it's just a, a symptom of what, what I call the selfie society. You know, all the, all the um, navel gazing that we do these days. So we're just, someone's just sitting in the fast lane doing one of these and not paying any attention. Uh, well, you, you, and in California, you're probably just out, yeah, you're you're probably just out enjoying the sun and and not a care in the world and like it just uh, it, it, yeah yeah Wisconsin it's it was 20 below last week so we didn't yeah. like we didn't have, like you have to keep your car going just so it doesn't break down uh, from like just freezing up so uh, maybe that's the difference yeah in in the so your your um, index of discomfort. If you if you're if you're used to having more discomfort, you're more sensitive about moving over for other people. It's a Midwest thing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I want to kind of shift gears here to our the topic that we're gonna really kind of dive into today, right? And and um, as much fun as it is talking about the demographic of Prius drivers, which maybe we could have a whole podcast just on that, I think. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about because things are getting more advanced and the skill level of technicians, I don't see that having, I don't see it getting easier as we go oh. forward, right? Like I don't, as things get more complicated, more computers involved, like I just don't think it's going to get easier, right? Yeah, I mean, cars aren't getting less complex anytime soon. Right. And I mean, you guys are front lines on that. I mean, in the in the shopware world, we're obviously serving shops all day long, um, but we we largely talk to the shop owners, you know, the people who are kind of more on the traditional management side of the business. Yeah. Um, and we're a little more detached from what the techs are doing every day. But you know, you guys at uh, you know, find a wrench and, and wrenchway, you're talking to the tax all day, every day. So I'm, I'm curious, I'm serious, yeah. what's your, what's your sense of how people are feeling about, about it? I think there's, it depends on the age range. Right. And I think, and I, I hate to equate it to age because I've seen some people that are like post-retirement that still study this and still mm -hmm. are really vested and really smart with technology. And I've seen some 
20 somethings that aren't. So like, it's not, it's not, it's certainly not just an age like, Hey, here's this guy's 70. He can't figure this out or, you know, anything like that. I think it's more the people that are really good at what they do right now and really good on working on, you know, your F-150s and your, you know, like all of the traditional stuff that see that that might be shifting a little bit and that mm-hmm. it's going to be, you know, it's, it's a little bit different than, you know, you see there's rarely a truck with like a V8 anymore, right? Like it's, it's feels like everything's kind of gone down to a six cylinder, or even four cylinder in some cases. And when they see that, that kind of change, it, I think it changes their comfort level. And if you're in the business for 20 years and you're really good at what you're doing and you see kind of this new thing coming in and I think it almost, it's almost demoralizing because you're like, I'm going to have to learn this whole other side of the business. And, and granted, a lot of it translates, uh, but it is different. And I think that's anytime in just general psychology, I think anytime there's change, it it kind of develops some level of nervousness. Right. And I think that's where people like change in technology is moving so fast right now that I think that's what people are scared of, but I could mm-hmm. be wrong. I don't get, what are what is your thought on it? Because I, I do think, you know, the fact that you're in it every day with boots on the ground and both on the shopware side and in your shop, I'm curious to see if, if that kind of translates or if that's just more of my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there is some of that where you look at hybrid training that's out there and it's like, you know, I already know what they're training on. It's the thing that, you know, we've been doing for the last however many years. So it's it, it, kind of what comes first, the broken car or the training on the broken car. Mm. <laughs> the, the broken car has to come first. And if you're the first person to to encounter that broken car, uh, which of course was our point of being, like we opened early and we hung our shingle. We said we were hybrid specialists, not hybrid experts. <laughs> no one knew what was going to, we didn't even know if that car was going to break. Um, but we had positioned ourselves there so that when it broke, people would want to come to us and we get it, we'd get first crack at it. And in all those cases, it was more of a willingness, like be ready, have the tool, uh, be ready to, you know, have the service information, be ready to figure it out <clears throat> and then go figure it out. And, and there was a lot of stuff that we did in house that, you know, we didn't charge the customer for. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of learning. And I mean, again, we basically ran a night shift so we could discover what was going to break on the cars before they broke on our daytime customers' cars. That's such a good idea, by the way. I mean, it was a lot of pain. So, yeah. I mean, I certainly recommend it, but but it, it worked out for us. And we were fortunate to have that separate pool of customers, the taxi cab drivers to facilitate it. We, we couldn't have invented it for ourselves. Hmm. So so there was a lot. We've just been very lucky, I would say, over the, over the course of my business. Like, for example, um, when we first opened, uh, Yelp had just sort of burst on the scene. And so we were doing something different and it was a very kind of yelpable, grammable type of experience. And so people spoke about it. People went online and wrote us reviews. And that was critical for us getting early customers because if we didn't have like a a third party validating that we could actually fix those cars, I think people would have just kept going to the dealership. So we were very fortunate to have Yelp come out. Now, most people, we talk to shop owners that, you know, Yelp's a four letter word. They, They hate Yelp. Yeah. So, so that, you know, again, one of those things is kind of upside down in our model. Um, But as far as getting the training, I mean, we, we as an industry have had some kind of like higher level, um, almost like um, 
more science, not scientific, what do I want to say? Like academic training on hybrids and electrics, but, and especially electrics. Yeah. And we haven't had as much like in-service training for these cars. And so in the absence, and similar with ADAS, right? We're doing seeing a lot of training right now with ADAS, but it's like, we have, I haven't worked on one of those cars in my shop. Right. So it's like, okay, what the heck am I going to do when that car comes in? So it's sort of like, um, you, you try to get ready, but I think we're, we're hungry for some more training on electrics. And I think we're going to see the, in the market respond to that. So my guess is you're going to see more and more content surrounding electric vehicle service and actual, you know, failure patterns. I'm sure Seth will be sharing case studies coming out of his shop and we'll all want to listen. Right. So right. in all cases, like one of the things that's just fascinating to me, one of the things I, I love about this business is that we're all self-taught, right? Like if you look at what it takes to be a good tech, you got to figure things out for yourself. Yeah. Like you have to teach yourself how to fix the car. You get some training, but ultimately it's, it's only you standing there in the bay. <laughs> and so we have that like uh, self-teaching autodidact part of ourselves that we apply um, every day to do our jobs and that we can continue to do uh, to stay fresh as new technology rolls in. However, we also do it as an industry. You know, when you look at who's, who's up front training, you know, it's other shop owners, other techs. Uh, we basically get good enough at whatever we're doing that we say, I think this is, this might benefit somebody else. And then we yeah. stand up at the front of the room and say, Hey, let me tell you what I found out. So there's, there's a lot of collaboration um, and sharing that's going on. I think it actually kind of kicked off with IETN. IETN was such a, a kind of a profound thing that happened in the uh, beginning of uh, sort of the dawn of the internet for yeah. us where people came because before that nobody wanted to share any of their secrets like you right. had your secret fix where you knew if that Taurus was stalling you knew where the engine harness was rubbing and you could go fix it but you were never going to tell anybody down the street where that was because that was your advantage right you know now we can't possibly store all of the secrets in in one of our heads and if we do we're, we're not going to be able to um, you know, fix any of the cars that roll in Norbays anyway. So we've gotten to a different mindset around sharing and supporting each other. Um, and we're just going to keep doing that as we move forward into different powertrains. So it's, it's kind of like, who's up for the challenge? Who's right. up for the ride? And there are lots of people who are saying, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to calibrate LIDAR. I'm all set. I'm going to get out of business. I'm going to sell my business to somebody else and somebody else can figure all that out. And that's fine. You know, there's lots of young people coming in. We see a lot of consolidation. A lot of folks are opening up multiple stores. They're picking up stores that are closing in their area. I mean, it's it's an exciting time for people who want to do business. Yeah. I What I love about what you said there is something that I've seen too, which is kind of a shift to more of a community, uh, you know, mm -hmm. rather than the infighting in the industry of, you know, and you still see it. Obviously, we're competing in businesses that you, you want to win, um, but those platforms like that. And you mentioned in, in our conversations before, we were talking about some of those techs that kind of are clearly head and shoulders above everybody else in terms of how advanced they are, how they proactively look for training. And, you know, I, speaking of IATN and, and kind of Scott Brown's past, you know, he, he really was a, a trendsetter, continues to be a trendsetter in trying to put educational content out and testing and you know, I see some of the stuff that he does online with like the Tesla stuff. And it's like, man, this is, this is nuts. Like, this is really, really good stuff. And mm -hmm. I, I think 
that's where, you know, I give Scott and a lot of the, the kind of industry pioneers and leaders that, that so much credit there because I think they're the ones that kind of shifted it to more of a community mindset rather than trying to hoard all the information. What can we do to help each other out? And yeah, that's such a big deal to me. Yeah. He's taking it to the next level with diagnostic network too. Like yes, he obviously he deserves all the credit for ITN and then uh, he's, he's gone and um, yeah. really taken us to the next level. And I, I think that in my like outlook, I see, you know, us trying to get new folks into the business, right? We're all growing our own techs right now. We all yeah. are picking people out of the local programs and starting to, to grow them in-house. We have to. But <clears throat> how do you get that person who's starting, who maybe has one, two, five years in the business, and then how do you connect them with the folks that are, are out there? Scott Brown, Matt Fanzel, Tanner Brandt. Yeah. Um, there's just all these, you know, really phenomenal uh, people that are proactive on Diag and are at the front of the classrooms uh, at Vision and all these other events. And it's just like, how do you get there? And there's a lot of content right now. There's so much stuff that's going on online. Worldpack has been amazing. Yes. Uh, it's like, it's incredible what they've done. Uh, but anyway, it's like, it's, it's, it's really hard for people to know where to go next. And, and I wanted to, to talk about that with you specifically, because I think you guys yeah. really have your finger on the pulse around, you know, the best techs in the industry. Well, I, I, I think somebody like Tanner sets the bar really, really high, right? Because he's, you know, we had him, we had him on the podcast uh, on an episode we did that released in January of this year of 21. And he was kind of going through his statistics and I, cause I was asking him about like, how many times do you misdiagnose a car? And like, it was some crazy number, like five times last year or something, or like, or one time, I don't know. It was something that just blew my mind. And in relation to how many jobs he did in advanced diagnostic jobs mm -hmm. and the amount of actual misdiagnosed cars that he had was just, to me, it absolutely blew my mind. And then you start to dive into it a little bit more with, with somebody like Tanner, where he starts talking about how, he is proactively looking for training. He, he mm -hmm. is really passionate about it. He teaches for world pack. He does, you know, he does a lot of the stuff that is just over and above what I see, you know, the, the average person doing. And I think that's true of any industry. Like you're always going to have those people that are doing the extra things and kind of setting themselves up. And to me, with when it comes to technology and it comes to technicians, you can tell the ones that put in the work on their own, uh, the ones that are truly passionate about it. And not saying that you should be going home and reading books every night on electrical diagnostics, but there is a difference between those who expect the shop to provide that training for them and kind of sit on their hands and wait for it. And then those that just go get it. And there's, like you said, I think there's no excuse for a technician right now not to not to not to do that extra training. There's so many resources out there, and something like Diagnostic Network that Scott's put together, just top notch. Um, there's just to me, I, I feel like there's as many opportunities now for that additional training than we've ever had in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, what what do you think on that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because there's like this concept of which is all you can eat buffet and just come to the buffet and, and, you know, learn versus 
okay, I know this much now, what's my next step? Um, like for me personally, I used to learn the most reading ITN uh, tech help, like tech mail. So you'd get the digest um, every night and read you know, people's posts and they would say like, okay, car came in and had this problem. It's just one case study after another. Right. Car came in, this code, these symptoms, blah, blah, blah. I tested this, 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 this. These were all the readings that I got. It's none of those things. What did I miss, right? And he read that over and over again. I was like, okay, well, if, if you have this type of problem with this type of code, then these are the things that you need to go test, right? So you, I just like learned that. I got it, got it sort of um, beaten into me from all of those different wow. uh, case studies. And, and I, used, I, I was so fascinated. I used to love reading those things. And like, it was so cool because you got to vacation in other people's hell. Yeah. Like, you know, you have, <laughs> you have, you have that's a great quote. <laughs> it was like, oh, you know, like that sounds terrible. They're like, oh, and we replaced the transmission and the engine and the gas tank. It's like, oh my God, how many hours have you put in that poor car? Like, you know, and then you get to just jump to the front and say, okay. And then, you know, then at the end you find out what was, what had ultimately went wrong. Right. So what would ultimately fixed it? So it's just like, it was such a, uh, it was such a pleasure. Anyway, I know that folks are still doing that. And, and uh, you know, the conversation is taking place on, on Diag. And um, I think that's a great place to learn and do so in a way that's in a social context um, to try and kind of find your way. What's my level? Um, you know, in, in 20 groups, they tell you, you, you put together, you join a 20 group and you get on the composite. And it's a, you know, basically a glorified spreadsheet that has everybody ranked and you get to see your numbers against other people's numbers. And <clears throat> what I was told is that you find somebody on the sheet that um, either you're inspired by or you're, you, you aspire to, to be, and then you track against them, right? You start mm -hmm. looking at their, their progress against your progress. So you find somebody out there in the business who's a technician that you really admire and then, you know, try to kind of follow them and, 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 you know, basically ask them, you know, what have you done? How did you figure this out? And let them um, sort of share that, that experience and what has worked and what hasn't worked. Yeah, I mean, the diagnostic stuff is such an interesting discussion and, and Tanner is an inspiration. I wonder whether he's being honest though. I mean, do you really think he only misdiagnoses five cars? I don't know. That, you might've just put him on the spot there, Jay. You, you know what? I you know what? Hopefully he listens to this podcast, this, this episode. I know he listens to it actively, but I, I, I don't mind picking on him a little bit either. So I, I you know, maybe, maybe we call his bluff and, and uh, we'll get him on here. We'll do a podcast together with him and just have a showdown of like, Hey, well, love, mm -hmm. yeah, did he, yeah. Did he tell you what the misdiagnosis they were, what they were? Or? No. Like as soon as he starts talking, he's so far above me in terms of intelligence that I just lose him. So he's just, uh, he's just off in outer space and I, I I'm not sure what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every, every problem car is like such a great story. You know, yeah. there's always this long story about it and you'll never forget it and you'll never forget what was the, ended up fixing the car and so on and so forth. So it's certainly, you know, if, if there were five misdiagnoses, he knows exactly which five they are and he knows yeah. exactly why. And so oh, I, I, I guarantee he does. Like he, he will uh, have that pinpointed, but what, one thing that you hit on is, you know, finding that person to look up to. And what I think sometimes it can be a struggle if that person isn't in your shop, right. If that's right. not somebody that's like working side by side with you and, I just equate it to like 
and I'm a big sports fan. So I, I kind of look back to like Kobe Bryant, rest in peace, Kobe, uh, with, but Kobe Bryant, he would go work on another piece of his basketball game every year. So like he wanted to work on like his low post game. So he went and hung out with Akeem Olajuwon for like a summer, like, and even for those of you that don't follow sports, like I think there's some level of that analogy in any realm of life. Like if you can find that person that you aspire to be, or at least take the strengths of that person, maybe they're not strong in every regard. I, I've known a lot of techs that were incredible techs, but just terrible in front of people. And so if you can pick to me, if you can pick that person and just figure out what their strengths are and kind of steal that for your skill set and grow that and focus really on that skill set, I think that can be a game changer. You know, if you're not strong at diagnostics, find somebody that is and, you know, go online, read these forums, read, you know, get involved with communities that are, you know, filled with incredible diagnostic people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just feel like y- you approach that the right way. And it's a heck of a lot to me, a heck of a lot more fun to read real stories than reading from a textbook and trying to figure out, you know, pick the pieces out of that and then maybe not even work on that thing for another 10 years, you know? Yeah, it's hard because, you know, making training, you know, building the classes and, and all that stuff is, it takes a ton of work. I didn't realize how much work it took until I started doing some of it myself. And just the number of hours, you know, weeks that you end up investing to put together a, you know, two or three hour class is kind of amazing. But, you know, it's hard to both be a practitioner and then also a trainer. So then if you do stop practicing and you go into training now suddenly there's this, this horizon that is uh, your, how much you know and how much you've actually done with your own hands, um, which is a trick. It's hard to balance. So folks that are both doing the work and training on it are, are particularly special. I mean, they're very dedicated to our industry. The fact that they can kind of have two full-time jobs uh, in that regard, and, you know, the folks we've already mentioned are great examples of that. <clears throat> but for other folks, you know, who are, to your point, like I'm working full-time, I'm tired at the end of the day, you know, how do, how do you keep going to want to then get on diagnostic network and read about case studies or attend a world pack, pack class or whatever the case? Um, how do you find that? How do you push that forward? You know, that's a, that's a real trick. One of the things that we've explored at my repair shop was like an equivalent of Google's 20% time. Are you familiar with that? Is that where they're coming up with new ideas 20% of the time? Or is that? Yeah, they have like 20%, different? like you don't have to you have your job and then 20% of your time is just whatever you want it to be. And it's like independent study, if you will. And so folks came up with all sorts of great stuff out of those, that extra time that they had. Like if you go look at sort of the history of Google's 20% time, there's all these great things that came out of it that are now part of like, you know, Google's core product that wouldn't have existed if they hadn't given someone the time to sort of figure that out. And so you know, they, I don't think they do it anymore in the sense that it's 20%. I think they realized that was too much and they needed to get more out of their employees. <laughs> but it's true though. I, I know 3M had a, I think they still do it to this day. Uh, and I, I think it's just like one day a week, right? So they do like, and that, I guess that would be, you know, probably the equivalent of, of 20%. But I, from what I recall, I think that's how post-it notes came to be a thing. Mm, really? Yeah. Well, so anyway, if it's 10% or whatever, how do you build some time into your technicians day, week, month to make time for training? Uh, one of the great ways to do it, of course, is to just never let a car out of your shop. 
even if the customer won't pay you for the diagnosis, like force yourself to figure it out some way mm. or another, um, you know, negotiate with the customer, what have you. Uh, so that's, that's one. We certainly have practiced that quite a lot in the, you know, hybrid space. And so we weren't going to let that car go until we figured it out. And then we knew what it was the next time it rolled in. But uh, yeah, I mean, figuring out how to build that into your, your day. I mean, I think that, you know, for us as a business, as an industry, <clears throat> we're starting to revisit this um, notion of, you know, who are our most important people. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, you know, the technicians were just kind of, you know, the back of house knuckle draggers. And, uh, and I think people are coming around and starting to appreciate a new, the skilled labor force and what those people should get paid, um, what kind of environment they need to have in the repair shop to, to be happy and want to come to work. Um, also training, et cetera. Like, I think, I think there is a pretty large burden on the shops. You had said like, don't expect the shops to do it for you. So, so it is a two way street in the sense that you have to engage as that yeah. technician, but understanding how you, how you progress through your career, you know, how do you make a career out of um, this work is something yeah. that I think is, is still pretty cloudy for, for the young folks that are getting in um, and pulling, you know, kind of dispersing those clouds and helping folks understand how they can grow and how they're going to be able to buy a house and raise a family and so on and so forth. You know, we're at 180 bucks an hour labor rate in my shop and we're working on the cheapest cars in the world. So, um, you know, I feel very strongly about everyone raising their labor rate and then passing that money back to their technicians. Um, We got to get there. Yeah. I, 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 I'm really passionate about that side too, because I think that's, you know, a big reason we do this podcast in the first place is that piece, right? Trying to make shops a bit more profitable um, and and really get the industry aligned at that at that level because I think there's still some there's still a lot of resistance there and even from the the labor rate side and so many excuses as to why you can't raise a labor rate and then you look at every other skilled trade and what they're charging per hour and you're like oh my goodness and and right. you know it just I, I couldn't agree with you more there. Um, one, this is just something that kind of triggered when you were talking there. How do you think, you, you took a unique path to get to where you're at today. How do you, if you're talking to like a 10 or 12 year old that is like interested in our industry and wants, wants to learn more about it, but like you look at a hybrid and how, or a, or an electric car, and how complex they are. How does how do how do we get a young a kid that's you know shows interest to not be kind of overblown by how complicated this stuff is? Like how do you how do you even start to kind of engage that you know that interest level so that you know when they do come out and they want to go work for Tesla or they want to you know go work for you in San Francisco that you've got that person in, in your, you know, kind of in the hopper. Um, but it's not like it used to be. I know, like we talked to a lot of shops that, you know, baby boomers that started off at a gas station and, you know, I just don't see the ability to be able to do that anymore. Um, or the ability to, I shouldn't say that way, but you're not going to have that full service gas station that you were talking about in Michigan as much. I mean, that's not very common. I just feel like that's where so many people got their start. 
-hmm. how do you start working on a on an electric car? Yeah, and one of the one of the ten well, one of the trends that is oftentimes discussed on the why we have no techs, <laughs> where you know where's the pipeline, is that auto repair has become invisible. It used to be that auto repair was happening right next to where you got gas, and you could see it, and you you could have had an idea what it was. Um, you don't see it anymore, right? It's like hidden, and also the car itself is a magic carpet. You know, it's we have as general users of the technology have no more understanding of how a car works than you know, our iPhone. It's like yeah. just this magic thing that happens in our lives. The good news is that there's a ton of job security right. for us, right? For folks who do wanna figure out how to fix an electric car, folks who do wanna figure out how to calibrate you know, a LiDAR sensor, there's gonna be a lot of that. And so <clears throat> the, the extent to which we've had probably too much competition in our business to the point that we're underselling ourselves, yeah. that's that's going away. And so the folks that are left standing are the ones that are, you know, going to be able to demand the rates that will appropriately, you know, compensate the them talent. as yeah. the owner mm -hmm, and pay yeah. those people that can do the work. And consumers aren't going to have a choice. So this idea that you know we can kind of get beaten up by our customer and say, oh, you know, I'm going to buy this online and I'm going to install it myself. Well, good luck doing yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to <laughs> um, go ahead and buy that factory scan tool <laughs> for $5,000. You go ahead and program that ECU. Uh, no, thanks. So I think that um, the change is happening to put us in a position. And I was talking to um, Dave Verb. He's a trainer from ATI and <clears throat> recently got introduced. Really sharp guy. Yeah. Pleasure to talk to. Anyway, he was talking about how, you know, when you look at the sort of distribution of businesses, of shops, there are some that are just like really stellar operations. And then there are these folks that are just, that haven't figured it out, who are like really kind of um, not only underperforming financially, but they're underperforming in just in terms of, you know, their presence into market, um, their, uh, ability to fix the car, you know, we've gotten by with, with Identifix for quite a long time. And, <laughs> That's true. And it's, kind of, it's like, you know, being able to, to operate in this business is becoming, you know, a lot more challenging. And so I think that um, for shops that are, are sticking around to compete, they're, they're getting pretty sophisticated. And likewise, we'll be able to therefore, you know, reflect that forward to their customers to understand the value of what they're providing. So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you set yourself up to demand a higher price, you will be able to demand that higher price. And if you do right. not, then you're gonna have to discount. Um, so it's in everybody's best interest for you to just you know, professionalize your operation and clearly shopware is a part of that solution, right? Is being able to actually bring the customer behind the curtain and understand, oh, actually you're doing some amazing things in my car and this is why this repair is expensive, is absolutely critical to sort of educating the customer and getting the customer to, to, to be a willing participant in it. Because, you know, we often fight with our customers. We have this like sense of antagonism between us and the customer. We've actually kind of set it up that way. There was, yeah. a, it, was it was deliberate to sort of keep the auto repair mysterious so you could tell the customer whatever you wanted. Um, and, and like maybe hide what maybe didn't go so well or something. And, you know, I think transparency and being as, as, as forthcoming with the customer as possible 
not only empowers the customer to make the right decision, um, but it sort of gets you out of the way. Like it's, <laughs> the, you're not the problem. The car is the problem. Let me yeah. show you the problem. You bought this car. <laughs> we didn't break it. You did. <laughs> and, or it broke itself or whatever. And um, you know, how would you like us to help? And so being able to position ourselves as, as the helpers, which is of course what we actually are, yeah. instead of being the, the hindrance, the obstacle that you have to go through to get this thing that you need uh, to keep your, you know, your life moving um, is I think a really important piece. And, and the, you see a lot of like really phenomenal shops doing this. I mean, you look at some of these folks these days that have just really clean operations and really good websites and like, you know, they're doing Instagram, they're doing all sorts of stuff like really showcase how much they care and the competence of their employees and stuff like that. Like it's, it's they're building their really, brand. Yeah. yeah they're building their brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So before we run out of time, we do need to talk about shopware. I feel terrible that we didn't talk about this until now, uh, okay. but it kind of falls right into this and, and, I told you at the, at the start, like once I get off on a path somewhere, like it, it's a, it's, a, I just completely forgot to talk about shopware. So I apologize. for that. <laughs> so, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. And, and what, what is shopware? What, what are you doing for shop owners? So we're a shop management system. So if you're using something, you know, right now to make repair orders, we replace that. And it has, you know, integrated workflow, DVI, other kinds of things that people are oftentimes using kind of in parallel. So those are all in one place. And, um, you know, we're happy to meet you. The um, industry is changing in many ways and certainly being able to upgrade the systems that you have in your business uh, is is part of that change. So we're, we're super excited to be here and be a part of it. There are other solutions out there and, you know, what Shopware does that I think is um, profound and important uh, as a differentiator <clears throat> is this idea that we're not just trying to help staff, uh, advisors, techs, whatever, make more informed decisions. We're actually trying to take those decisions away mm-hmm. so that humans can do the stuff that humans are especially good at and let the machine do the things that the machine is especially good at. And so we have um, several different examples of that on our platform. And that's ultimately how we're going to win at the end of the day as an industry, because the only work that you know, generates money for your business is the technician working on the car. And everything else you have to do to support that technician working on that car is a waste of time and of money. And so minimizing how much of that support is needed to get cars fixed is the name of the game. And when you look at the changing ownership trends, like if you think of like the Carvanas or the lists of the world that are ultimately going to be brokering the cars getting fixed, um, you know, they're not going to tolerate the waste in your business that is because of having extra humans doing things that they don't need to be doing. They're going to go to the shops that can do it faster and can do it more efficiently and therefore cheaper for them. So, um, you know, it's exciting as hell, right? It's, it's an adapt or die moment for, for our industry. A lot of change. I mean, as a shop owner myself, I'm going to feel that pressure. And there's, you got to constantly you know, get up every day ready to, to meet the challenge. Um, but certainly, if you're looking for upgraded shop tools, we'd love to talk to you. One last question on that. What, give me an example of something like when you, when you talk about decisions that are made by humans that you're able to kind of take the thinking out of that or that, like, do you have a, a specific example where that might 
you know, kind of paint a picture for, uh, for our audience to, as, as far as what that means? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be a little crazy too, because you're thinking to yourself, like, I've always done it between my ears. I've always done it myself. What do you mean someone else is going to do? I don't want to give it up, right? And the like, robots are taking over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so we have, uh, here's two great examples. So one is our um, parts GP optimizer. So you tell Shopware how much money you want to make as a percentage. And then Shopware goes and gets that for you. So instead of using a traditional parts matrix where you're hunting for the dollars that you want to make, Shopware actually just goes and adjusts your prices to get you the GP that you want to make by making incremental adjustments across your entire inventory based on your sales in the last 30 days to go and achieve that target. Wow. So this is where the machine can, can price your parts a heck of a lot better than your advisor can fiddling with every single part on every single ticket, not to mention the time that they're spending doing that. Right. So just let the machine do it. And then guess what? You're going to just get that GP suddenly. We have people, you know, many customers who say, I've never been able to get 55%. And I plugged in the number and then bam, I got it. So anyway, that's one example. Wow. Back that's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a lot of money too. I mean, it yeah. adds up to thousands of dollars that you're, you're adding to your bottom line. So um, a, an additional example would be the customer side. So there's two different pieces of the puzzle here. One is how do we solve our internal operations? And then secondly, how do we solve our external operations? And so Shopware also has a digital repair order that you can share with the customer and allows the customer to come onto the repair order, see what's going on, see photos, look at recommendations, approve work, message back to you in the shop. Um, and so normally that would be done over the phone, right? You'd be picking up the phone. You have to have a synchronous event with the customer. You've got to convey all of that. Instead, Shopware is facilitating all of that communication and it does it better. We look at the data and shops sell more when they share the job and when they don't, even the same shops on the same system, um, if, you, if you give the customer that information, they're gonna say yes. And uh, that's very compelling. This is, this is really cool. Uh, and- I'm glad you're excited, Jay. This is, I mean, thank yeah. you for giving me an opportunity to share, but- Oh, absolutely. I, I um, It's unfortunate we're, we're running up on our time already and I, I definitely will have to have you back. I, I, get, I would love to. It's so fun. You're quickly becoming one of my favorite people in the industry as I, I get to know you. I feel the same way, Jay. I feel the same way. It's so fun uh, to, to talk with you. And I'm glad we were able to record this one. I think when you and I got off the phone last time, we, we talked for quite a while. And we're like, we should have just recorded this. This would have been know. great. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to meeting in person. Yes. Sometime soon. I do and, um, I, I have spoken to many people about you and your services uh, since we had a chance to meet. And um, I know you guys are doing really great things for the business. And it's, it's just a pleasure to get to partner with you and, and to talk. So thank you again for having me. Oh, thank you for being on.